Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 18 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 2nd of June. And Leon, today we're talking to Bill Ollett. That's right. Bill Ollett's the Managing Director of the Martin Trust Centre for MIT Entrepreneurship. And he's going to be discussing with us his take on global entrepreneurship. That should be very interesting. And after that, we're talking to Shane. That's right. We're talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist uh, Shane Oliver, and he's going to be talking to us all about the growth of the economy, problems with that, and the impact on the share market. So let's now listen to Bill Orlett. So, Bill, tell us all about the big trends in uh, global entrepreneurship. Well, first of all, um, entrepreneurship, if it it gets to be too much noise here, let me know. Um, I just stepped out of this boot camp we're in. I mean, the the trends in global entrepreneurship is it's it's, uh, a hot thing. It is something that has caught the interest of everyone, that everybody agrees is a good thing. You hear them clapping for you? No. um, So it used to be when I first was started being an entrepreneur in 1993-94 that entrepreneurship was kind of a you know sometimes even in a word for being unemployed but now it's 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 more and more being seen which i think is a really good thing as a as a as a true profession as, as there's a body of knowledge about how to be an entrepreneur and uh, that's a major change in what's going on and, and the reason that is is because entrepreneurship is a big jobs creator first of all all. Um, there was a study by the Kauffman Foundation that showed between 1980 and 2005 of the 40 million net new jobs that were created in the United States that you know virtually all of them were created by startup companies. Um, these are companies that are five years old or less, new startup companies, not just SMEs, but new high growth startup companies. And um, so that's where the jobs are. That gets government's attention. Young people see it as a career option now, um, that where they control their own destiny and they can do things that they're really passionate about in an environment that's dynamic. So it's very popular amongst the government people for economic reasons. It's very popular amongst students for a career choice decision. And um, I think that's a good thing. Well, of course, uh, I mean, back uh, around the time of the global financial crisis, entrepreneurs were seen as... Uh a very bad thing uh, that they were derided more than anything else. So, so what's changed? What do you What do you mean by that? Well, they were regarded as um, sharks. I mean, that they were regarded as people who were just exploiting people, and uh, that they weren't highly regarded. The word entrepreneur uh, back eight nine years ago was uh, regarded with some derision. That's interesting. Um, I don't think that's true today. I mean. Yeah. The word capitalist kind of, you know, Wall Street, that is more seen as, you know, sharks doing that. Entrepreneurs are, are you know, at least in, in the world, in the circles I travel in, is seen as something very positive. You have social entrepreneurship. You have people that are solving the, you know, intractable problems of education, healthcare, you know, um, energy. Um, every big company wants to be more entrepreneurial. So um, I haven't seen that negative connotation. Um, I think that's more of a cap, you know, people when they say we're capitalist in the United States, when they say, you know, investment banker, things like that, that has more of that, right. but not entrepreneur. Everybody loves, I mean, you know, 
Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump might not agree on much and Barack Obama, but they all agree that entrepreneurs are a good thing. So what are the big trends in entrepreneurship? Where are the big industries coming from? Where are the big fields that entrepreneurs are moving into? Well, the, the biggest ones right now, I mean, you've seen them moving into wherever there's opportunity. Healthcare is a huge opportunity. People are in that. Energy has been a big one for us in, in Boston. Fin, what they call fintech, financial services. Um, when you look at it by an industry standpoint, no industry is untouched by it. But, you know, um, those are some of the biggest ones. But, of course, there's social media, search engines, advertising. It, it, it's just become ubiquitous, you know, what technology is doing. I think the ones that are most interesting right now to people are, 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 are this you know, markets, platforms like Uber, the Uberfication of the world, the Airbnb, you know, Airbnb, very similar to, to uh, Uber, where you've got um, a, a demand that's disaggregated and a supply that's disaggregated. And can you put a platform in between them that connects, you know, customers with potential suppliers uh, of the of the thing of of what they want to buy? And that has proved to be an enormously efficient compared to today's inefficient marketplaces. And that, frankly, has been enabled in large part by, you know, ubiquitous uh, computing power, often in the, in, the, in the manifestation of the phone. Because now, you know, when I first started in the industry uh, in 1981, you know, we had mainframe computers that cost millions of dollars. And today we you know, storage that cost millions of dollars attached to that. No one could use the computers. They were connected to nothing. And now everybody carries around in their pocket computers, that is their cell phones, that are more powerful than the mainframes we had in those days. But probably equally, if not more importantly, not only are they very powerful computers, but they're easy to use. By Anyone can use a cell phone and they're attached and they're connected at all times. And, and we're only scratching the surface of what are the opportunities that that creates. But, you know, markets is certainly one of them, like, like Uber and Airbnb. Bill, a lot of people think that technology is costing jobs, but it's changing things. What's the experience, your experiences going to happen and is sort of in process of happening in terms of employment coming out of new companies and entrepreneurship? Well, I, I think, you know, what, you, what happens over history, and, uh, you know, you've been, you've been around a long, a long time as well, um, is that, you know, did, did, did trains replace people taking care of, you know, horses and all that, and, and you know, driving wagons? And the answer is yes. But it creates new jobs in the process of that. And I think Thomas Friedman talks about this in, well in his new book. You know, while there are certain manual jobs we don't have, there's still lots of opportunities that people come home after. And once the, the, the robot does some work for them, they still need people who are going to, you know, massage them and, and uh, uh, entertain them and make sure that they're not isolated with all this uh, automation. So to me, society and human beings are complex systems that you know you push on one side and, and it creates opportunities someplace else. So will there be job loss? Absolutely. Should there be job loss if we want to continue to develop economically? Yes, but there will be new job creation in other places. So, I mean, this is, this is very interesting because um, 
Of course, uh, Donald Trump's uh, great election platform was to bring back the jobs, and I mean, that was seen more as a trade issue. But of course, the jobs are going because of technology. Look, you're going to, I think there's political rhetoric and there's realities, right? You know, to say that you're going to bring the jobs back from, you know, from China to make iPhones, are those the jobs that people in the United States really want? Second, secondly, are you really going to bring back jobs for coal? You know, there are other factors involved with that. You know, or you could rally people and say, we're going to bring back the horse, you know, the horse and buggy. We're going to bring back the horse and buggy. And we're going to bring back, you know, mainframe computers by. But the market decides what will what will happen and what will not happen. Politicians can't make that decision. All they can do is facilitate it or create more friction so that it doesn't. Yeah, I was reading a book the, the other week about uh how a lot of men in the US, and this has been a trend that's been going on for years, are actually leaving the workforce because their jobs have been taken by technology, whether it be uh, drivers or in retail or for that uh, industries. Uh, and all of that's being replaced by technology and these men are leaving the workforce and they're not showing up in the official stats of people looking for work. I think that's quite an issue. Yeah, well, my, my colleagues, uh, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee, talk about this a lot. And, you know, with the power of artificial intelligence and um, machine learning, you know, there's a lot of things we can do. But I guess we, for, for that same rationale, we, we could have stopped a lot of progress that was going to happen. Um, maybe we're at a new level of it, but you, you can't stop the progression of technology. You can't stop it because you want to. People are going to drive cars. They're going to use computers. What's, you know... The jobs, you know, I have students that build systems that that are going to obsolete a lot of the things that lawyers do. But it's things that should be, if not, what are we going to do? So I guess the question is, what's the alternative? Now, will there be some dislocation? Yes. And, and over, you look over the arc of history, this does happen. But generally, societies do adapt. How much now depends on politicians' understanding what you and many others are now talking about in terms of the transition into new means of employment. Obviously, short-term thinking doesn't help here. You have to think long-term, and you have to understand you make logical choices. And sometimes in politics, logical choices are not always made. What I believe is that we need to give people education and opportunities and if we do that, then we'll have a much more stable system. If we don't do that, we're going to have unstable systems. And then politics will not be as constructive as it, as it can be. Let me give you an example on that. You know, when people don't have economic opportunities, they tend to be very disenfranchised and make decisions that are less than logical. This is where you get extremism. And, you know, and you've seen this when, when in the United States with the election of, of Donald Trump. A lot of the, the people were very alienated. And when you look at those places where they're alienated, they're alienated because they don't have opportunities. And this is almost correlated one for one, you know, or inversely, I should say, one to minus one between economic vibrancy tied to entrepreneurial vibrancy where there's entrepreneurial opportunities for people they tend to make more rational long-term decisions 
When there isn't, they tend to just give up and, and reach for make illogical decisions. Just think about what you 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 have. If you if you're an entrepreneur, you have hope in your life, something that you have ownership in that you've created, and you also have rigor in your life. And therefore, you understand it and make logical decisions. When you don't have hope, pride, and rigor in your life, people tend to do crazy things. Look, thank you very much, Bill, for your time. Really appreciate it. And it's been very, very insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Gary. Good luck. Well, there you go. What do you think? Fascinating stuff. Yeah, good stuff. Really good stuff. And uh, entrepreneurship is just so critical now. That's right. There's a fair amount of it in Australia in a curious, quiet way. That's right. And, uh, you know, we should see more of it. And so I'm hoping more people will listen to that. Now, Shane and the economy. Shane, Oliver, the forecasts are that GDP will be lower this time because of the effects of uh, Cyclone Debbie, etc. What's your view about it? I think there's certainly a risk that uh, we may see some disappointing news um, regarding economic growth in Australia. Um, the budget was reasonably upbeat, and I must admit I have been looking for growth to pick up a knot through the course of this year. But the readings we've got so far on the March quarter, with the March quarter GDP numbers coming out in early June, um, they're actually pointing to quite a soft number, quite a slowing in growth and the risk of a negative outcome. Um, several drivers there, obviously Cyclone Debbie has affected uh, coal exports at the end of the quarter, but that will also continue into the June quarter. Um, we've seen some very weak retail sales figures for the March quarter. And on top of that, we've seen continued softness in construction activity, this time interestingly focused on the housing sector. And so as a result, when you put those numbers together with assumptions for some of the other components, we could end up with a GDP outcome for the March quarter down close towards zero. Our forecast at present is 0.2%, but it could be, could be a little bit lower than that, could even be negative. And then, of course, in the June quarter itself, we'll see the full impact of the impact of Cyclone Debbie on coal exports. And of course, the last time Cyclone impacted coal exports was back in early this decade, Cyclone Yazi, and the economy went backwards when that happened, only to rebound, of course, in the subsequent quarter. But th these things are acting as a bit of a drag on growth. I think the most significant one abstracting from the weather effects is the weakness in consumer spending. It seems that Australian consumers have been hit by a combination of uh, concerns about their debt levels being too high, uh, some of the bank interest rate hike uh, flowing through, you know, worries that uh, house prices might soon start to fall and that results in a negative wealth effect if you're in Sydney and Melbourne and those prices do come down. And of course, uh, rises in prices for things like electricity. Uh, so all of those things, I think, are weighing on the consumer, even though in the great scheme of things, interest rates uh, are still very low. And I guess the other factor worth noting is, of course, record low wages growth flowing through as well. So it's uh, we've got some short-term factors there, bad weather, um, but, of course, the longer-term concern, of course, relates to the, uh, the weak Australian consumer. And, of course, you've got uh, the jobs figures, which just show the rising level of underemployment. Yeah, that's a big problem for Australian households. Headline, unemployment isn't too bad, just below 6%. Can be better, but certainly uh, not a disaster. But the real problem has been the high level of underemployment. Yes, we've had jobs growth. But uh, we really need more full-time jobs as opposed to more part-time jobs. And there's a, there's a structural element to that and a cyclical element. Obviously, companies are still a bit cautious in employing full-time workers. But also, we're seeing a shift in the economy as technology takes over and displaces jobs in areas like manufacturing, middle-income-type jobs, and replaces them with part-time jobs in, uh, in the services sector. 
often lower paying jobs. So you've, you've got this uh, high level of underemployment and uh, that, that, of course, is feeding through to low wages growth. Now, of course, uh, John Fraser was up before the uh, Senate Estimates Committee yesterday, the Treasury Secretary, and he was actually quite upbeat about the economy's prospects uh, looking into the future, and he was uh, sticking to Treasury forecasts, and he said this time Treasury forecasts will be accurate. Well, I I guess coming less than a month after the budget, I I guess he would be upbeat because the budget uh, growth numbers were relatively upbeat, and I guess uh, it's logical he'd still want to defend them. But, you know, history has shown that uh, uh, governments, forecasters of all, (laughs) in most areas, uh, um, have tended to be too optimistic over the last few years. We've had bouts of growth looking healthier than it sort of settles back down again. Similar story at the Reserve Bank. So, yes, I can see where uh, the government's coming from. You don't want to give up on the government's uh, numbers just yet. But the numbers, as they've uh, rolled out so far through the March quarter, have been on the soft side. And the Australian consumer is feeling a, a bit of stress at the moment. So I think it's uh, it's way too early to get too gloomy here. And I do think that at some point growth will pick up as the big weights on the economy from the end of the mining investment boom comes to an end. But for the time being, we're still stuck in the slow lane regarding growth. And you could argue that, yes, conditions are probably better overseas, that Europe looks healthier, uh, the US looking a little bit stronger, um, certainly with much lower unemployment and underemployment, and China still growing around 6.5%. So it, it, yeah, for investors, I guess, you know, it's still a case to look overseas. Well, that, that actually is the, a, big, a big issue. I mean, what does this mean for the Australian share market moving forward uh, in terms of profits and uh, in terms of... Uh, share price growth? Well, I, I guess it's, it's sort of a mixed bag for the share market. On the one hand, we, we are seeing good growth in profits through this financial year, particularly the, the, the rebound in resources profits, but that doesn't look like it's going to be sustained in a big way. The iron ore price has already fallen back uh, below $60 a tonne. Latest number was 58 um, But of course, that bounces around a bit, but it's well down in the highs we saw back in, in uh, March this year of around $95 a tonne. So that's going to weigh a bit on the resources stocks as we go over the, through the next financial year. And then, of course, if the consumer is a little bit subdued, of course, we've got Amazon coming into Australia, then that's going to weigh on our retailers. And then, of course, as the housing market slows down and the bank levy impact and all these other things, that's going to weigh on the banks a little bit. So in a relative sense, a tougher environment, I think, for the Australian share market, given the impacts on those three sectors, resources, uh, consumer and the bank. So I think that the Australian share market will still be higher by year end, but for, as an investor, and you'll still get good dividends out of the Aussie share market, but as an investor, I still think we're probably going to see ongoing outperformance by global share markets relative to the Australian share market, which has been the case, mind you, since 2009. You know, we've been a relative underperformer uh, ever since the GFC, in fact, and that partly reflected the fact that we were an outperformer prior to that, big outperformer through last decade. But now it seems our economy is relatively constrained. Now with housing slowing down as well, potentially slowing down as well, it looks like that underperformance of our share market will probably continue. What are your forecasts for the housing market? I mean, that seems to be a big worry out there. Well, it's interesting if you look at Australia over the years, we often go through periods where everyone's talking about a housing bubble and then suddenly everybody's talking about a bust. Um, And I think we've hit one of those critical moments now. The noise, the negative noise around the housing market is intensifying. We've seen the the bank rate hikes out of cycle. We've seen tightening lending standards from APRA. We've seen uh, ratings agencies downgrading banks' uh, credit ratings. 
we've seen uh, a massive increase in supply. See the cranes all over the place about to hit the market in Sydney and Melbourne to a lesser degree elsewhere. Uh, that's all units, mind you. And I, I think all of this will will impact uh, biophily for investors. And therefore, I think we've probably seen the best. I've, I've been thinking for the last few months now that, that peak momentum in price growth in Sydney and Melbourne is behind us, that we're now going into a slowdown and at some point um, ahead, we'll see a decline in prices, probably not till next year, but prices in aggregate could come down 5 to 10% or so. Um, more for unit unit prices could come off 15 to 20% if, if there's a crane nearby. <laughs> so I'd be a bit wary about units at the moment. Now, of course, all of this relates to city and Melbourne, so we've got to be dangerous in, in generalising here. If you're in Perth, prices have been falling for a couple of years now, and they're probably getting closer to the bottom. And of course, Adelaide and Brisbane, they're sort of in between city price growth running around two to three percent. And it's hard to see much of a slowdown in those cities. If anything, they might pick up a little bit. So it's it's a sort of a messy picture. But I think momentum in the Sydney and Melbourne property markets have slowed. As that slows down, it's going to be a bit of a drag on the New South Wales and Victorian economy. I guess the off, the offset to that, we hope, is that public sector capital work, you know, all the freeways, expansions and extensions that are occurring, um, numerous other light rail and things in, in Sydney, all these sorts of things should help provide a bit of an offset. But that slowing in the city of Melbourne property markets will be a bit of a dampener. That's uh, sobering thoughts to uh, think about. Thank you so much, Shane Oliver. It's been my pleasure. How do you read that, Leon? Well, I think he's dead right. I think the Australian share market will be underperforming for some time. In May, they had their lowest, their worst figures since January 2016. And that was that was a very bad month. It was. A lot of people very worried. There's no sign that June will be any better. No, I think we've got some serious problems ahead of us. But anyway, a little better than that, we got the news. First of all, British Airways faces a massive compensation bill after thousands of passengers were left stranded by a global IT meltdown. The compensation bill is tipped to be £150 million. Pounds. That's about $258.3 million Aussie dollars. Now, under EU law, customers whose flights are delayed or cancelled are entitled to assistance and compensation if the disruption is within the airline's control. Travellers can't claim compensation if a delay is less than three hours, according to the BA website. Now, this systems crash over the weekend forced British Airways to ground all flights from Heathrow and Gatwick on Saturday, created chaos at both airports. Dozens more flights were cancelled on Sundays. Passengers were warned not to go to the airport without checking their flight status. Uh, many passengers spent the night at Gatwick sleeping on yoga maps and shops at the airport ran out of food. And our British Airways had a power supply issue caused system failure and it was not the result of a cyber attack, but they're facing a big payout. And also the question of how come a company as big as BA didn't have a backup power supply? Very curious. Yes, I think I think that is a real issue. Now, Gary, following on from what uh, Shane Oliver said, we're looking towards a bad start for the year. Australian consumers aren't happy. Sentiment has remained negative this year throughout May for the first time since the dips of the global financial crisis in 2009. That's left retailers reeling. It's hurt car dealerships and made investors bearish on mall, on mall operators. As many shoppers are saddled with record household debt and weak wages growth, it's hard to see the pessimism breaking. Weak signals from Australia forcing economists to revisit their first quarter growth forecasts. Some are even suggesting a contraction. Home building, net exports, household consumption could be a drag on gross domestic product for the first three months of 2017, according to some estimates. A negative print would raise the spectre of recession, especially as a cyclone that ripped through Queensland's key coal mining region is tipped to subtract growth from the three months through to June. A weak number 
Abbott would likely cast further doubt on the government's growth forecast delivered in its annual budget in May as Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's ruling coalition struggles in the polls. The Treasury is forecasting GDP growth of 1.75% in 12 months through to June, accelerating to 3% by fiscal 2019. Most observers are waiting for the key GDP components such as net exports and business investment to fine-tune their forecasts ahead of the June 7 report. Further out, seven-quarter growth is tipped to be curbed by Cyclone Debbie, which saw North Queensland coal exports plunge nearly 70% in April, according to a Platts report. The first official component of first-quarter GDP landed last week. Construction data prompted Commonwealth Bank of Australia Securities Unit and National Australia Bank to warn of downside risks to their forecasts and potential for a negative number. Building work has fallen by 0.7% in the first three months, worse than 0.5% decline predicted by economists, and weakness in the residential sector is the main drag. So what we've got is a deluge of bad luck for the lucky country. And what we have now, of course, began years ago. We thought we had a never-ending party. And adding to Australia's woe is spot price for iron ore has fallen to below $60. It's now at a 2017 low. According to the Metals Bulletin, the iron ore price has now fallen to $57.91. That's the lowest since October the 14th last year. That means it's fallen nearly 40% from its highest $94.86 a tonne struck on February 21st this year. And that's very bad news for exports and uh, very bad news for government revenues. Now, the ANZ Room One Consumer Confidence Index has ticked higher for the second week in a row, rising up 1.5% to 112.2. While this brought the index back to the levels it was before the budget, the overall level of confidence is patchy. Households' expectations towards both current and future economic conditions rose 3.5% and 4.6% respectively. But views about current financial conditions are broadly flat. They've arisen only 0.1% and views towards future conditions dropped 1.7% offsetting the 1.5% rise of previous weeks. Overall, you'd say the confidence in financial conditions has fallen sharply since the budget, Gary. And the only bright thing is that uh, this prospect of austerity has uh, persuaded a lot of company boards to reduce the pay of their uh, senior executives. Well, that's one bright spot. Yeah, straw in the wind. That's right. Property prices in Australia's two hottest markets, Sydney and Melbourne, have slipped according to CoreLogic data. Sydney property prices have fallen 1.3%, 1.8% in Melbourne. And because Sydney and Melbourne are the country's two biggest markets, the data reveals a 1.1% fall in dwelling values across an index of five capital cities for the month so far. Perth is down 0.6%, but Brisbane property prices rose 0.8% and Adelaide gained 0.5%. So it's patchy. The worrying part for property prices is that in the two biggest markets, Sydney and Melbourne, they've fallen. And that could be signs for correction. A declining optimism, a bit like looking for a lifeboat on the Titanic. Now, Australian Bureau of Statistics data show a 4.4% rise in houses approved for construction in April after a 10.3% fall in March. House approvals rose 0.5%, while apartment and other dwelling approvals increased 9.6% in seasonally adjusted terms. Now, Tax Commissioner Chris Jordan has launched an internal review of the tax officer's policies and procedures following revelations and charges from the $165 million tax fraud. Appearing before the Senate Estimates Committee, Mr Jordan admitted the reputation of the Australian Taxation Office has been badly damaged by the fraud, with the Federal Police revealing an alleged conspiracy to defraud the Commonwealth of $165 million in tax revenue. Deputy Commissioner Michael, Michael Cranston has been charged with alleged abuse of his position as a public official, and his son Adam has been charged with conspiracy to defraud the Commonwealth. Mr Jordan, however, defended Mr Cranston. He said he'd not been considered for conspiracy to defraud the Commonwealth. He said Mr Cranston had made what he 
he said was a huge error of judgments in talking about the matter to his son, but was not part of the alleged criminal syndicate. He acknowledged, however, that the Plutus tax fraud ring had damaged the ATO's reputation. And that's the least of it. And uh, then what about the money? How much of that $165 million is uh, recoverable? Tax office says they're, they're recovering it at the moment. So Selling a few of Cranston's racing cars. Indeed, indeed. But it's a worry. It's, and it was a worry that came from so close. And you have three public officials in the ATO are being investigated too. Yeah, and boy, that made, leaves a bad smell. Does it what? Now, Treasury Secretary John Fraser says household debt levels need to be monitored in the likelihood of interest rate rising. And in his, sediment, in his testimony to the Senate Estimates Committee, Mr Fraser, who sits on the Reserve Bank Board, declined to give any indication about the level household debt needed to be when it becomes a threat to the economy. But he said debt would be a problem when interest rates start to rise and said the housing market remained a key to the economy. At the same time, he gave an optimistic assessment of the economy. He said it should pick up after a year of weather-related events. He said the economy contracted in September 2016 due to bad weather and the impact of Cyclone Debbie is expected to cut growth by 0.25 percentage points during the June quarter and that will drag Australia's gross domestic product down to 1.75 percent in 2016-17. Growth is forecast to bounce back to 2.75 percent in 2017 and 3 percent in 2018-19. Now Mr Fraser's forecasts come in the wake of Treasury forecasts in the last three month budgets of a lift in economic growth of 3 percent and they've always fallen short. Now, Mr Fraser told the Senate Estimates Committee that, in his words, the long period of growth undershooting forecasts is beginning to come to an end. So he says, from now on, Treasury forecasts will become more accurate. And he said the big change from a year ago had been the boost in confidence. He said economic policies need to look beyond Sydney and Melbourne. And he said Arium in South Australia was an example of the end of the resources boom hitting the broader economy. So at long last, we're going to get accurate forecast then well let's wait and see but it's it's interesting that it comes from him under questioning isn't it now adani's 16.5 billion dollar carmichael mine might be on track after the company reached an agreement on royalty payments with the queensland government adani said the accord in their words meets adani's expectations and requirements without actually spelling out any details in their statement the queensland government has not revealed details of the agreement claiming they are commercial in confidence the board of adani's parents will consider the deal at its next meeting the agreement comes after a week of upheaval with the company deferring an investment decision in the project after delays in reaching the agreement and factional wrangling in the Queensland government over royalties. A snap meeting of the Queensland cabinet on Friday decided there would be no royalty holiday for the miner. On Saturday, Queensland President Premier Anastasia Palachuk said a government had worked night and day to finalise the new framework and said the state cabinet had agreed that Adani will pay every cent of royalties in full. She denied cabinet had backflipped on any previous deal she'd struck with Adani, which would have seen the firm paying only $2 million in royalties annually and costing taxpayers $320 million in lost royalties. Adani's project has been delayed several times since it was first announced seven years ago. There have been protests, court action from Indigenous and Green groups, concern about it generating greenhouse gas emissions. It's been the biggest environmental campaign in Australia since the Franklin campaign in the 1980s. And Adani is still waiting to learn whether it will receive a $900 million federal government loan to build a railway line taking its coal from the Galilee Basin to the Abbott Point Port. It looks like a lousy deal, frankly, and the whole of Queensland is depending on it uh, producing jobs, but if it damages the reef, uh, the net gain will not be a gain at all, be negative. That's quite an issue. And also, what's this about the loan? I mean, other companies
companies like Rio and BHP paid for their own railway line. Yeah, and Adani's supposed to be a big company. That's right. I think it's a fix in there, just knowing the Queensland government. All eyes will now be on with the feds, whether they deliver it. Yep. Now, finally, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has launched legal proceedings against private health insurer NIB, accusing it of misleading customers about their coverage. The ACCC alleges that between June 2011 and October 2016, NIB had informed its members that several of its policies covered eye procedures and they'd not pay any out-of-pocket expenses. However, the members did incur out-of-pocket expenses because the ACCC alleges ANIB failed to inform members of its decision to remove certain eye procedures from its Medigap scheme in 2015. Yeah, interesting that one, isn't it? Well, I'm wondering whether the ACCC is now going to be targeting health insurers. Yeah, it'd be a good idea. Well, especially since Medibank Private, which is the biggest, it was sold off and its chief executive left as well. Of his own accord. Oh, then that's it for this week, Gary. And next week we're talking to Stuart Mills of CenturyLink. And that should be very interesting. It's a very go-ahead company. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.